Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, a pro team in Houston, not named the Astros, finally wins a game in the last few weeks. We'll tell you how the Texans did it as we are joined by the man solely responsible for the re-signing of Justin Verlander, my old friend and Sports Radio 610 Zone, Sean Bajani. Great to have you, Sean. Oh, man. Thanks, Robert. I didn't know I was given that responsibility of being that guy to bring Verlander back and to bring the Texans just their second win on the season. But I'll take it. You are a good <laughs> luck charm. No, no, Steven, on this one. He's got some other business to take care of. But let's just start off with the Verlander stuff because that's the team in Houston right now that rules everything. What did you think when you heard that Justin Verlander was coming back with the Astros this week? I was shocked. I mean, I think everybody had to be shocked that he'd signed with the Astros, you know, forget about the amount, forget about the years. I, I think we just all felt as a fan base um, and media included that, you know, this was kind of just one big piece of the undoing. Forget about the acceptance of losing Carlos Correa, which seems every day like more and more of a reality uh, than just a possibility. But I, I just I couldn't believe Verlander decided to re-up with the Astros. I mean, one minute he declines the qualifying offer, which, you know, understandable uh, to a large degree. But considering the fact that he's going to be 39 years of age when he uh, next pitches for the Astros or at the time pitched for anybody one year, $25 million, you know, the deal. And I think the qualifying offer was 18 million this year, 19 million, something like that. And I, I just, I, I couldn't believe it when I heard the news. Um, I think it's huge. Um, the first thing that I thought of was Altuve and Bregman and Yuli and really every other member of the Astros staff and roster just exhaling with a big sigh of relief, like, oh my gosh, because this is huge for what the Astros can do now in the future in terms of signability with other free agents and some other moves they're able to make down the road, even as the season begins and gets underway in 2022 now. Depending on what they do between now and then, they saved a lot of money with that deal with Verlander using the Grinky money, which I think was $35 million coming off the books this year. Who knows where Grinky winds up um, and what he looks like down the road. But I, I just thought it was huge and, and fantastic news for the Astros and the fan base. It really cushions the blow when you know that the Korea news is coming out pretty soon. And Sean, I, I think what's interesting is that a lot of this was framed as though Jim Crane's relationship with Verlander is what brought him back. And that's a big deal when everybody is going to have their eyes fixated and in a very angry glare when Correa walks, thinking that the Astros maybe weren't willing to shell out the 10 years that Correa wants and, and that sort of money. Yeah, I am so intrigued by the line of thinking, the philosophy that differs from team to team when you talk about these gigantic contracts that guys before Correa, um, you know, like Lindor or Mike Trout, um, guys that have signed eight to 13 year deals. I'm always intrigued by that philosophy from the team that is willing to to pay up, so to speak, because I've heard different angles on this from an Astros perspective. Well, you know, look, if you gave Carlos Correa the 10 years, $341 million deal that Lindor got, I mean, if you give him that deal here, then what's the worst that could happen? Like, are you, you're telling me like seven years down the road, you're kind of stuck, you know, shaking your head like, man, you know, what are we going to do to get out of this, you know, salary cap hell or whatever it is at the time? 
but you're going to forget that, okay, you just literally lived a decade plus of winning and competitive baseball, potentially, that results in you being a perennial World Series contender, at the very least an AL West division perennial contender every year. You know, so doesn't that make it worth it? But then on the other hand, it's like, well, look at this deal. Look at the Pujols deal. Look at the look at the Trout deal, which, you know, could probably and probably will be an anomaly. But look at all these horrible deals that have been done in the past. And why would you put yourself into that category? Well, you know, not everybody is the same. Not every deal is made equal. Not every player is equal. And Carlos Correa proved yet again his value to this team. And I thought he's improved every single year. If he hadn't done it with his OPS, if he hadn't done it overall with his bat period, he's done it with his leadership ever since the Astros were embroiled in this cheating scandal. I just thought the voice that he brought to the organization paid absolute dividends and helped rejuvenate guys like Alex Bregman and Jose Altuve, and particularly Jose Altuve, maybe help even mature a guy like Alex Bregman and learning how to deal with the day in and day out process of answering these questions about cheating and things like that and concentrating more just on the day's game at hand um, and improving and getting better. I think Carlos Correa's value in that regard is unmatched by most players in Major League Baseball. And so if it's 10 years, 341, Believe me, it's worth every single penny. You always worry about the health, but even if a guy had played his first six years in the bigs to full health capacity, um, you still have to worry about the future. Anybody could break down at any given time. Just so happens Carlos Correa has a bit of a track record. One thing that I, I think the fans might not take into account is just that, you know, you're going to have all of these good young players that you've been mm -hmm. able to develop. They're, they're coming up on arbitration and the arbitration money, Sean, it, it's going up and up and up and up. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens yeah. with the collective bargaining agreement and how that frames everything. But I, I think that's the thing that fans might not consider when you look at a Correa contract is what is it going to cost you potentially if you sign him? How many guys, good guys, great guys could it cost you? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. I kind of like in the Atlanta Braves situation, they're very similar to the Astros after Houston won the World Series back in 2017. They're they're considered, you know, young. Um, they had already a couple of guys locked up for the future and Alex Bregman and Jose Altuve. The pitching staff looked like it wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. In fact, just continued growth. And this is obviously pre-cheating scandal, but the draft was looking promising. Um, before the Astros had their first round picks stricken from them for a couple of straight years. I mean, everything looked really promising. The money, no question, you just won the World Series and you've got the star-studded roster just around you and the staff included. I feel like that's very similar to what the Atlanta Braves are looking at right now. They're young. They've got themselves in a really good financial situation. Still some tough decisions to make, I think, in terms of years and money. I don't know exactly what they're going to do with a guy like Freddie Freeman, but um, considering that they're going to be that much healthier at the start of the 2022 season, they've got a lot of promise in years to come. And certainly the point that you make with the arbitration money is absolutely huge. Um, as you know, just like anything else, the money's just going to go up. The demand is going to just go up. And when that's the case, you know, the money will follow and you got to follow the money. And what the Astros have in the farm system still, while depleted over the course of the last few years, I, I think is still very impressive from where Jeff Luno began this process with to where he got this organization, even in his absence now. The Astros are still very, very 
I think, farm rich in what they could potentially need to harvest over the course of the next couple of three years. And the decisions that Click has made I think have surprised a lot of people. He's been pretty impressive over the course of the last couple of years. You know, has really fought to keep this team competitive in all things, in part to Jim Crane. I think that's why the the relationship, as you mentioned, with Justin Verlander and Jim Crane is so strong and played such a role in his return. You don't think about those things. But if we do kind of go back in our time machine a little bit when the fan base was reeling after the hurricane and this Astros organization just being right there on the cusp and needing an extra guy, Jim Crane stepping up and bringing in Justin Verlander, that rejuvenated this entire roster, this entire fan base. And it obviously paid off pays and continues to pay its dividends. Um, all of those are contributing factors. And, you know, at the end of the day, this Astros ball club has done what they've done for a reason. And it's because they focused and they understood while it was going to hurt, while it was going to take a massive PR hit, they were very honest with people. And it's a, it was words that you don't often hear a front office use, especially a Houston sports front office. But when Jeff Luno came in and said, we're not retooling, but we are going to rebuild and we are going to overhaul this whole thing. He told you that it was going to sting. It was going to hurt and it wasn't going to be pretty. But, you know, a few years down the road, it will pay off. And it certainly has. And I think that kind of honesty is what builds a fan base back even stronger. Um, and I think we don't need to forget that. I think it's important for us to remember that and focus that Jim Crane has also helped lead that way and at times has made money no factor at all. Even if you don't think Jim Crane was the key factor in bringing Verlander back and, and, and that relationship, it's Jim Crane that is why Verlander is here to begin with because he was the guy that said, look, uh, Jeff, we, we got to make this move. We got to go trade for mm -hmm. Verlander. So if Verlander doesn't come here to begin with, then we're not talking about Verlander re-signing here. And so it is Jim right. Crane. And the Astros fans, Sean, they've got to be so thankful when you look at the train wreck that we're going to get to in a little bit, the Texans, that you've got Jim Crane as your owner. No question. No question about that. Um, I, I think, you know, as, as, as a rocky road as Jim Crane entered on, you know, with the no TV contract situation and the news about, you know, his companies uh, and the previous issues that he'd had with them coming up and how he'd made his money, the type of businessman that he was allegedly, uh, the settlements out of court, all those things like, man, if this is the guy that Houston's going to get as their new owner of a baseball team, boy, we really are in trouble. And it's been quite the contrary. I think the road that he's traveled to get to this point and this status of quite clearly the best owner in Houston sports right now um, is nothing short of, I won't say miraculous, but certainly one of the more impressive things that I've seen in my coherent sports fan fandom life, if you will. Um, and it's, it's been really enjoyable. I, I just, I tell my, uh, I tell my buddies all the time, you know, just what a time to be alive, you know, to see the drastic changes, the ebbs and flows of just the Houston sports landscape over the course of the last decade, really, you know, where we had literally entered into the golden age where the Astros, Texans and Rockets were perennial contenders and a real threat to win to win their championship, their league championships. Maybe not so much the Texans, but certainly times were a heck of a lot more fun. Um, and more enjoyable at noon on Sundays than they are in present day uh, today, certainly 
excluding that point. But I, I think uh, Jim Crane has done a fantastic job, and I'm looking forward to the future with him. Um, and, and really, James Click, another year under his belt. Um, let's see what he does this offseason. He's got a lot of work to do to continue to solidify this roster. Um, and certainly this pitching staff, Justin Verlander, doesn't fix a thing, really, Robert. Um, we can be surprised, shocked, um, impressed, happy, you know, all of the emotions. But one thing that I'm going to, and I think you will as well, and everybody should, monitor this every day once the 2022 season starts. And that's Justin Verlander. I mean, if we can validate our excitement for this signing, then he's going to make major league history this year because there are less than 10% of pitchers out of, I think, 2,000 plus that had Tommy John surgery after turning the age of 37 that have done a damn thing in major league baseball. And I think the two that come to my mind is Bronson Arroyo and Jamie Moyer. Moyer did it at the age of 47. Arroyo was 37 when he had his Tommy John surgery back in 2014. And neither one of those guys returned to any level of what they had done before. And never mind, you know, Justin Verlander being literally one of the very best power pitchers in the game of baseball at the age of 35, 36 years of age just a couple of years ago in Cy Young contention routinely. If he gets back to even close to that level, to sniff that level, it's an absolute huge win for the Astros organization. Excellent point. And I want to get to where the Astros are right now. And I'm I'm glad you made that point. There are seven potential starting pitchers, assuming everybody's healthy for opening day. Verlander, McCullers, Fromberg, Garcia, Urquidy, Christian Javier, and Odorizzi. As we know, you really need at least seven starting caliber pitchers to get you through a season these days. But Odorizzi is still likely odd man out in the starting rotation if there's an injury to the other six, or I should say, even if there's an injury to the other six. So, Sean, I don't think Odorizzi, he's not going to be happy in the bullpen. I don't think he's going to be happy. There are innings-related incentives in his contract. Does he get dealt before the season? What do you think? I think it's a strong possibility. I mean, there's no question he won't be happy with a role in the bullpen. He wasn't happy with getting pulled after three or four stellar starts um, through four or five innings. It, it was just – I didn't know what to believe towards the end of the season when he was pitching really well but just not getting the innings. And remember he had that tiff you know, after the game, even after a win, um, where he told reporters that uh, you know he didn't get it. He was, he was just kind of beside himself. I forget his exact words, but – if he wasn't satisfied with contributing that way with this team, which was on the cusp of doing, again, what they did, and that's reach a World Series, um, falling uh, a little short of winning another one, then he's not going to be satisfied with a role in the bullpen unless there is some serious reality check on his behalf. But to be quite honest with you, man, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around what the Astros were doing in the, in his handling towards the end of the year myself. He was pitching really good baseball, and it was a time in which you didn't know if you were really going to be able to trust Luis Garcia in the postseason. You really still had your doubts, I think, about uh, Jose Urquidy in the postseason. And quite literally, a number of these guys, all of these guys, especially when Grinky was looking like he was losing it and McCullers was just the lone guy that you know, rest your laurels on and, and believe in every fifth day. 
Odorizzi was pitching fantastic baseball, getting you through four or five great innings of work, and they'd yank him. And so I was I was kind of like him. I was a little miffed at that as well. And then to have not even include him on one of the postseason rosters, I just couldn't believe it. You know, for a team that was starved for veteran and consistent arms, um, that surprised me. I would not be shocked at all if the Astros found another home for him. Um, I just I'm kind of intrigued to see what kind of return that would yield. Next question. I'm a big fan of Christian Javier because his arm is so electric. The Astros, same, in my opinion, would have been a better serve team if he had started most of the year instead of Odorizzi, and he was in the playoff rotation this past season because of that electric arm. Would you put him in the rotation over Garcia or Urquidy? And if so, which one? It's tough for me to say right now because all three of those guys have really proven quite a lot to this point, especially Garcia, you know, pitching in in some huge spots, some winner go home spots for the Astros this postseason. And Urquidy now for the second straight postseason, being allowed to do what he does and not disappointing at all, just stepping up huge. While Jake Odorizzi, look, you signed him because he was a veteran presence. He'd been there, done that before. And with a young staff, you know, he might be able to help them um, in some preparation and certainly in need of an arm. And, you know, when desperate times call for desperate measures, as they do, when you have guys like Zach Grinke and Lance McCullers, either up in age, you're going to need to protect them later on in the season or Lance McCullers, who's obviously had bouts of injuries. You need a consistent guy like Jake Odorizzi, who unfortunately this year had his own injury situation. I think it's a really good question, but I think it's a very difficult one to answer because Christian Javier had his comeuppance, you know, sort of um, mid-season, and we started to really see how much the Astros could benefit from having him on the mound. But I mean, my gosh, look at the jobs that Luis Garcia and Jose Arquiti did and Jake Odorizzi did. If all three of those guys can be healthy and the two young guys in Garcia and Arquiti can continue to improve and grow, it's going to be a tough spot, and it's a beautiful problem to have if you're the Astros when you're just looking for a way to include Christian Javier or either one of those three others. Yeah, I just think he's the most electric of those three guys, and, and that's the kind of arm you need in the playoffs when you're going against playoff-caliber teams. And, you know, if, if it was me, the one with the least electric stuff and the best ability to go to the bullpen – is probably Luis Garcia. And he's coming off a season where he's pitched more in his life than he ever has, Sean. So mm -hmm. maybe you move mm -hmm. him back. And it's not forever because there's going to be injuries and he's going to get back, back in the rotation. And I think he could handle that. Sure. It's kind of like a Brad Peacock situation, right? I mean, you know, here comes this starting pitcher, you know, this middling guy. And he had one of the best seasons he'd ever had as a starter in Major League Baseball. And he finds himself as a key piece coming out of the bullpen and pitching long relief for you on your way to a World Series run. It very well could be a situation like that for Luis Garcia. And I would honestly love uh, for that to be the case in an option for a guy like Jake Odorizzi. But there are guys that just, and I see why, they believe they are still starting material in this league. And if Odorizzi believes that and he's not going to be happy with the role that is given to him by the Astros going forward, then we appreciate your services. But we're going to help you see if you can uh, find a home somewhere else and we'll see what that yields. But I think it's a great problem for the Astros to have. I'd like to see 
as you're saying, the Astros have a little bit more electricity in and out of that bullpen on the starting staff than we do right now. The Verlander signing is nice, but again, there's forget about saying there's no guarantee. I mean, it would just be literally Major League history and a story of just how science and 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 medicine has progressed over the course of the last you know, four or five decades if Justin Verlander is able to come back and even get close to what he's been in the last three, four, five years even. Um, his last couple with the Tigers and first few with the Astros. It'd be incredible. And it goes without saying that McCullers is day-to-day, year-to-year. So, you know, we don't know who's going to be ready for opening day. He is, but he's on a hell of a contract. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. As, as long as he plays, that's, that's the, the big thing. Correa... Um, unless a meteor strikes the earth or something crazy happens, he's gone. He's leaving Houston. Who do you believe is the most likely starting shortstop for the Astros? If you went to Vegas, who are you going to put your money on? Well, it's tough. That's tough. Simeon? Yeah. Simeon? I, 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 you know, he's the one that, you know, I've, I've read the most about. I've, I've obviously seen the most of. He's, I believe, going to be 31, maybe close to his age 32 season when 2022 gets started. And that kind of a contract that the Astros offered Carlos Correa, which, you know, look, if I'm the Astros and click, I'm making that same type of offer because I'm not giving anybody 10 years. I just, if you can play 10 years, then fulfill the first five, and we'll talk later about the next five. You know, that's kind of the way I'd approach it, and I know it doesn't uh, obviously work that way. But Simeon would be more more the kind of a guy at the stage of his career that would take, and that kind of contract would make the most sense because at the end of it, he'd be towards the end of his 35, entering his 36 uh, age season. So I, I'd probably say him if I had to go put money on it. Maybe not a lot of money, but if I had to go put some money on it. I'm still putting my money on Jeremy Pena. I, I don't know what Simeon's going to get, but I, I have a feeling if there's at all a bidding war, the Astros are out on the bidding war. Next question for you, Michael Brantley. He had a 575 OPS against lefties this season. He has a 691 OPS versus lefties for his career. So not the typical year for him, but 691 uh, for his career. Nothing special there. Does he get platooned? This season, yeah, I just think that's a tough, tough decision for the Astros to make. I mean, you're forgetting that Michael Brantley was literally one of the most consistent and one of the best hitters in all of baseball, really, since his big league career began. I, I feel like people forget about him in his first ten years and what he did with the Cleveland Indians. You know, for a large amount of that time, I mean, what the Yankees were really good, the Red Sox were really good. There were a lot of teams in the American League and just baseball overall and players that overshadowed Brantley and his accomplishments in Cleveland. I feel like the Astros put Michael Brantley back on the map. And since he's been an Astro, he's been nothing short of what he's built his career on, being one of the best, most pure hitters in all of Major League Baseball. And he's coming off another stellar season. He's got his injury issues, certainly. He's getting up in age, but He's going to have to kind of play himself into a platoon role. I don't think the Astros in their right mind can go into the 22 season with that being plan A, if you if you will. Yeah, the big thing for me on Brantley is it's not just that he's getting older and getting worse against lefties, but his injury issues, it's probably worth platooning him at this point with Chaz McCormick, but that assumes that they can make this Starling Marte deal. And, and I don't know where that goes because... Again, like Simeon, 
It's can you win this bidding war? Are you going to be willing to try to win a bidding war over his services? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, I get the I get the numbers against the lefties as well for Michael Brantley, but certainly there are other there's always other contributing factors, and it, it, it's it's tough. You know, it'll be a tough. Uh, situation for Michael Brantley. It's always difficult when a veteran who knows his capabilities is dealt with, you know, making a decision like that. But the Astros have him on, in my opinion, a really friendly contract, his second contract with the Astros. Uh, he's been terrific. You know, Michael Brantley is a pro's pro. Um, he wants to win. And I, I think, you know, this the, the opportunity to do so here in Houston has become contagious and almost like a drug for everybody. They have done to this point, Robert, you know, whatever it takes to win. They've trusted the front office. They've trusted whoever the manager is. If it's been A.J. Hinch, if it's been Dusty Baker, the players they've got in that clubhouse as well, the Cornerstones and Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman and bringing Justin Verlander back. And there's a lot of leaders on that field and in that clubhouse. Michael Brantley, certainly one of them. A soft-spoken one reminds me a little bit of Andre Johnson, Mr. Consistent, a guy that you could always rely on. Never said a whole lot, but when he did speak, you certainly listened. I have to believe that whatever decision the Astros do make is in the best interest of Michael Brantley and the organization. Might be a tough pill to swallow initially for Brantley, but we'll have to cross that uh, bridge when we get to it. But my, my money's on Brantley to continue to do what he does um, if he's playing 120 games a season, you know, having to miss here and there, the Astros take care of him a little bit. Maybe it's more of a platoon situation than it has been in the past, um, situation by situation basis. Hey, fine, so be it. But I think the Astros are totally comfortable, and Brantley is knowing that he is still one of the most consistent hitters in all of baseball. Great comp on Andre Johnson. Hadn't thought about that one. Last question I had for you was there, as far as the Astros goes, was there anything that bothered you about how Dusty managed the postseason? Because I hadn't got a chance to talk to you about that. You know, if you would have asked me the question, you know, three, four weeks ago, I, I might have had a different answer. But, you know, emotions, while they run high at the time, have kind of, you know, simmered down a little bit. But quite honestly, you, you don't agree with some moves in terms of continuing to play. Martin Maldonado was a, a big one for a lot of people. You know, why don't you play Jason Castro more? he's swinging a better bat but we'd seen time and time again every single time that that uh, suggestion is made whether it be during the regular season or certainly in the postseason Maldonado shows exactly why he is on the field and you kind of take that risk reward the reward being what he's able to do behind the plate certainly more so than what he's able to do at the plate that was one of my biggest ones and quite honestly it becomes a team decision at that point, really a staff decision from the Astros and the pitchers, the guys on that starting staff and coming out of the bullpen, what they're most comfortable with and what makes them the most confident being on the mound. Maldonado saves a lot of pitchers' pitches and creates a lot of opportunities, you know, that maybe Jason Castro, quite honestly, wouldn't. Not saying he's anything less of a catcher uh, versus that of a better hitting player at that position, but I really had no problem uh, with how Dusty managed. Nobody's going to manage a perfect game. Um, nobody's going to call a perfect uh, football game. You're going to make mistakes. There are mistakes made on every single play in the game of football, and I think there are mistakes made that you don't see 
in every single pitch of a major league baseball game, whether it be a fielder maybe being a step or two out of position on a shift or maybe playing even a guy straight up. And you don't get to see it because, well, the ball's not hit there. There are mistakes made all over the place that, you know, aren't talked about, aren't discussed. It's the ones that happen on the biggest stage that kind of resonate with us. And I might be missing one, but if I'm being honest with you, there's not one of those that sticks out from Dusty Baker's decision over the course of the last couple of years as Astros manager that I can fault him for. Just want to throw this out real quick before we finish the Astros conversation. They make a deal really quiet this week. Garrett Stubbs is gone. We're, we might miss Garrett Stubbs a little bit, but they trade him for an outfielder, Logan Cerny. I believe that's how you pronounce his name, C-E-R-N-Y. Yeah. And this is somebody that might be able to help you down the road. 22-year-old, showed some power and speed in college, uh, was starting to heat it up a little bit in single A, has all sorts of physical skills from everything that we've heard. So James Click, he's been good about making these sort of under-the-radar deals and just the over-the-radar trade that I think <laughs> everybody noticed was that Phil Maton deal because, you know, not only did he get Maton that really performed well in the playoffs for, for giving up straw, which basically you, you had a better player probably with, with Chaz McCormick, and then, you know, we, we saw what was going on with Jake Myers on the cusp at, at, at AAA, but also, you know, you, you got a really good catcher in that deal, uh, Yonder Diaz that's down in, in single A and has performed great <laughs> with the Astros mm -hmm. minor leagues as well. So, man, James Click, he, he makes these little small moves that you, sometimes at first you're like, sure. wait, wait. And then you start looking at it a little bit closer and you're like, wait, wait, there, there's something there. Yeah, I, it, I think it's a great point. But, you know, those moves always intrigue me. I mean, it's kind of like beauties in the eye of the beholder, right? You know, what happened with Cerny and the Phillies organization where they thought, you know what? Yeah, we'd like a 28-year-old catcher who's never had an opportunity to really make a name for himself in Major League Baseball. We'll give you a 22-year-old Cerny, sure, who's coming off of – you know, an incredible season in 2021 or 22, you know, uh, that batting average was there. Power numbers were there, you know, had over an 1100 OPS. I mean, the kid is 22. There's all kinds of potential there, Robert. And I'm always intrigued by these things. One organization said, yeah, sure. We'd like to get six years older at the catcher position and we'll give you this 22 year old player. I mean, it's almost like an embarrassment of riches. I look at it like with the Houston Astros, like how did click fleece the Phillies on this one? <laughs> you, know, you got six years younger in the farm system and another opportunity for a developmental player who maybe a year, two, three years down the road is playing an integral piece to another championship run. Yeah, I mean, I just I, I love what James Click has done as the general manager so far. There, there is nothing to complain with him at the moment. Um, the only move that sort of blew up in his face a little bit was Pedro Baez, but that was an injury situation. Maybe you just couldn't foresee that one. But right, let's, right. Let, let's move to the Texans because you know we we've spent thirty minutes on the Astros, but hey, the Texans won a game, and they're like, hey, look at me, look at me, guys, I'm over here. And and Sean, <laughs> <laughs> what we like to do. On our Texans postgame show is go through the Texan drive, see what went right and what went wrong. And this year, it's about making it feel like you've watched the game. So people like you, Sean, don't necessarily have to waste a perfectly good Sunday on this team. You can just, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll catch you up. We'll, you'll catch I up did. on the podcast. <laughs> I did. I, I wasted a perfectly good Sunday. You know, it was chill. It was raining outside. It was kind of one of those days where it was built in. It's like, eh, 
there's no baseball on TV. I might as well watch the Texans and talk about it with Robert later. Yeah, I think thanks for doing that. And let's start off with the first drive and the Texans defense forces a punt at midfield, fourth and two Titans jump before the snap when they were trying to go for it. So they got a little bit lucky there, but then on offense, 14 play 62 yard drive, fair Baron field goal. It's three, nothing Texans. And one thing I can say is that this was the Tyrod Taylor that we saw in the first week and the first half of the second game against the Browns before he got injured. The first half, he looked like the guy that you're like, wait, wait a second, is this Deshaun or is this Tyrod Taylor? <laughs> I saw a couple of people on Twitter go, Deshaun who? <laughs> and I was like, all right, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was it was more tongue. It was it you could tell it's obviously more tongue in cheek. I mean, we're talking still about a two and eight football team here, but Tyrod Taylor, um, yeah, he looked really good today. I'd say for um, more than half of this football game, because there was a stretch in the third and early fourth quarter where the offense just looked, I have to imagine, because this is the first Texans game that I've watched this year. I only read about them and see what I've missed. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to believe that. And look, we've all seen Tyrod Taylor play before. He was even a member of the Houston Texans. Yeah, he probably looked as good as he ever has for much of this game today. I know he certainly did in the first half, and Texans are up 3-0 and 6-0, and they get it up to 19-point uh, lead, and you're thinking, holy smokes. Man, what would have happened if Tyrod Taylor was quarterback in this football team instead of Davis Mills? They might have accidentally won about three, four, five more games than they uh, have already in the books. Yeah, no, he he was great the first game, and he looked great at the beginning of the, of the Browns game. And and then against the Dolphins, he comes back. He's You're like, oh, my goodness. This is maybe why Tyrod Taylor's just been bouncing around the NFL. But then, you know, he gets back rolling again in this one, and it looks all right. Uh, the next drive, Texans on defense. Titans drive to the 18, but Gruget Hill an 82-yard interception return to the six-yard line. But in true Texans fashion, Sean, they lost yards on offense and could only kick a field goal, and it's it's still 6 nothing. But, yeah. you know, that, that's that's the Texans. They, they couldn't convert. They, they had a golden opportunity right there. You can help me out with this one. I, and I was, I'm, I was looking forward to almost this conversation about the Texans more than the baseball and the Justin Verlander conversation for this reason alone. It's because I'm watching this game today as kind of like a novice for this 2021 season. I haven't seen these guys play. You know, I haven't heard of Gruget Hill in like three years. No, he's he, he's been good. He's been actually yeah. the real – I mean, he's been the best signing that Casario made of all the guys that he brought in on defense. He He's really been the most impressive. Billy Collins has had his moments too. But Gruget Hill's the guy that just he keeps coming up every single week with with plays and and actually making impact plays, which we don't see well, a, a and ton. That's, that's what I was that's what I was going to ask you about because you know I made I made a lot of notes today, and you know after that Gruget Hill interception, I was like, okay, you know it's his second career interception. All right, cool. Um, even though I'd forgotten this guy, you know, even existed, he's been nothing more than a role player on every team that he's been on for the last three four for his career really. Uh, since 2016 coming into the league, um, he looks like a player. I guess from your comment right now, this is a guy who's been you know playing like this all year, coming up with some big spots, um, big plays in big spots, and he certainly did today. That's the note that I made. There was two guys 
maybe three guys that I really kind of took notice of today. And Gruget Hill was certainly one of them. I know we haven't gotten to this one yet, but I could not believe since we are in the first quarter, I could not believe that this was David Culley's first challenge this season. It took 10 games for the Texans to even have a play that close to being successful that the refs might have missed. Turns out they didn't, <laughs> but I just couldn't believe Kelly threw the challenge flag for the first time today, and I was actually there to see it live. Yeah, that learning curve for Cully as head coach is <laughs> is, is going to be a super slow one. But You tell me, how many times should he have thrown the flag this year? You know what? Honestly, it, it doesn't feel like that's something that's really bugged me. And I guess it's just I, I got so tired of the Texans throwing a challenge flag and losing it over the years, especially <laughs> when, you know, a lot of times they were right and and they would still screw it up on the replay or there would be enough angles because it was a CBS production. And they they bring like two cameras to the game or something like that. But, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's not his biggest fault to this point. Uh, it's down the list of faults, but. <laughs> Okay. All right. I just, it just seemed kind of odd to me. And, you know, on that play in particular, which I thought was clearly uh, not a touchdown, you know, I thought he would, he was out of bounds, um, you know, getting the knee and the elbow in. I just thought that was a pipe dream and a half, you know, even with the angles that they did have. Most of this game was kind of a bend, don't break on the Texans defense, but the next yes, drive, it was a yes. three and out. And so offensively, the Texans go nine plays, 76 yards. Tyrod does his Superman imitation on a seven-yard touchdown. Very Deshaun-like. That was the first Texans touchdown on the road since week two versus the Browns. That's what you've missed, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. You know, I could what was it? The first touchdown on the road since what? September the second against against the Browns? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So, you know, they score that touchdown. Fairbairn misses his third extra point of the season, right? Yeah. Wait a second. Third extra point on six attempts. He's only kicked in seven games this year because of the injury cost him some games. And what's crazy, Sean, is I, I find it funny that the Texas communication department had in their notes that Fairbairn has made 56 consecutive field goals within 40 yards or less. And later in the game, we'll hear about his 47th one. The, yes. That's the longest streak. They wanted to point out the longest active streak in, in the NFL this this year. Last I checked, though, Sean, an extra point is within 40 yards. <laughs> right, right. I, I heard that, and I was like, are you kidding me? It's like, all right, they just separate the extra point. Like, never mind. Like, we all know every single kicker is heady. You know, he's like a closer in Major League Baseball. Like the guy, they have a screw loose. There's something wrong with them. You know, they, they're they easily high and they're very easily low. And you'd think like where you have to be the most disciplined after a score, like your chip shot, regardless of how far it is, like you're supposed to make these things. And he's missed 50% of the ones that he's had the opportunity to kick this year. It's just kind of, it's a head scratcher to me. Yeah, that's unreal. And and then the Texans on defense, the they get... The big stuff on Adrian Peterson on fourth and short, a group led by the aforementioned uh, Gruget Hill. And the thing that sticks out about that stuff and just the Texans in short yardage, they have been awful for not just the Cully administration, but this goes back to most of the O'Brien administration. They're terrible on short yardage, but they did a fantastic job. And, and, and I've just got to say, and we're going to get to – more stuff with the defense, but Lovey Smith 
has done a hell of a job considering the garbage that he's had to work with this year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know the Texan statistics, you know, coming into this, uh, this game today. I mean, for a football team that's one and eight, uh, you know, offensive, defensive team stats can't be off the charts great either way. But I thought the Texans did play a, a really, really sound football game today. They looked like the eight and two team out there. They looked like the most disciplined football team out there. I thought to that point you're talking about where Grugier Hill makes that big stop on fourth and inches. Leading up to that point, I thought the Titans played incredibly undisciplined football. I mean, they had the pass interference and the personal foul, I think, in almost back-to-back plays. I can't tell you how many times I noticed the Titans lining up in the neutral zone that wasn't called. And then poor offensive play calls. I think all of that contributed to just how good the Texans were able to execute defensively. You know, for every team's success, there has to be faults from the opposition. Having said that, you also have to recognize and give the credit that is due to the team that is doing the execution. And today, the Texans defensively, outside of maybe two drives, Robert, where, you know, look, and it's not necess- it's not the fault of the Texans' defense. It was some, you know, play calls and some decisions made by the Texans offensively today where they should have had maybe a little bit bigger of a lead. But I, I thought the Texans, and you mentioned that bend but do not break, the dam was very close to breaking today for the Texans defensively because you can only make so many third down stops. It just so happened today that they made way more than they were supposed to. They made way more than the Tennessee Titans had planned for them. But you have to give Lovey Smith credit. This defense today really came to play. Didn't care who was on the field. They did not look like a one and eight football team today. The other thing that's worth noting is the Texans defense looked good, but there was no Derrick Henry. The the Titans didn't have two of their top three receivers. And by the end of the game, they didn't have their three top receivers. So you got to point all those things out. It goes into the equation. But like you said, and and it's important to note, look, the the coach that was supposed to look like the coach uh, that was the best on the field uh, was not the best on the field in this game. And, and and that of course is Vrabel. Vrabel has been fantastic pretty much the whole time he's been with the Titans. But I, I thought the, t- the Texans just out got, you know, they out coached him in this game uh, offensively after that uh, fourth and shortstop, there was a three and out for the Texans, but then the Titans go down the field two minute drive and you think, Oh, here we go. But it yep. ends with the play. We usually only see the Texans make Tannehill yes. gets called for an intentional grounding, which cost the Titans a shot at a field goal. Yes. And what, what was the what, what was the play that happened before that intentional grounding? It was a penalty on the Texans, right? That that improved the Titans field position. And you're thinking like, OK, there's what, nine seconds left on the clock. Surely the Titans are just going to try and get points here, but they don't. And they opt to throw. And, you know, just run another play and then throw the the intentional grounding happens. I just could not believe that Mike Vrabel makes that decision at that point in time. Take the points, go into the half. You can't be shut out by the Texans, you know, for 30 minutes to start a football game. It just can't happen. You got to get points on the board because, quite frankly, the Texans should have had a bigger of a lead at that point in time. But because of their own, uh, you know, faults offensively. And credit to the Titans of what they did and what they were able to do, you know, on some big third down stops defensively, 
you got to get your team some points there. I just thought it was it, it was a horrible decision and one of many today for Mike Vrabel and the Titans. He counted on his veteran quarterback to make a smart decision right there. His veteran quarterback failed him on that decision and some other stuff today. So we go to the second half. The Texans drive to the 35, and on fourth down, Cully does not let Fairbairn try a 53-yard field goal in the Tennessee rain. Now, Sean, we might have been discussing this a little bit on whether that was the right thing to do, but then Chester Rogers lets the punt hit him at the five and the Texans recover. So I guess who cares? It worked out perfectly. Yeah, I just would have kicked. I, I thought the field goal is the right call, uh, you know, at that moment in time. You you watch the game. You have a pulse for it. You know, you kind of have a feel for like, you know, what what the the mood is on the sideline. And I mean, I made it. I made a note, you know, they should have kicked the field goal there. But like you're saying, you know, that play happened. You know, the muffed punt sets up another Taylor touchdown run. Texans go up 19 nothing. And. You know, you're like, wow, holy smokes, can you believe it? It just seemed like the most Texan thing ever. You know, just when you think one thing's going to happen, aha, uh-huh, just wait. <laughs> you know, let me show you what we got in store for you now. Yeah, Tyrod with the great scramble there. And yeah, you said it, 19 nothing. And the thing about the field goal is maybe the rain was playing a factor. I brought that up. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of because, you know, that was the right thing to do and, and to kick the field goal. And Fairbairn, Look, he's been bad, but he's got that range. He can kick it 53 yards. And, and, and with a Texans team that doesn't score a lot with a chance to just get a field goal, even if it's a little bit less than a 50-50 shot, you know, to me, that's something that you go ahead and do. It's not like the Texans defense. You count on them to shut him down for the whole game. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. Coming off of that, um, the Texans defense – Gives up 13 plays, 78-yard drive. Tannehill to Des Fitzpatrick, 18-yard touchdown. But then our old friend, remember Randy Bullock? He misses the extra point. It was like, oh, <laughs> he's finally helping the Texans. <laughs> yeah. You know, that that drive right there um, that you're talking about, that 13-play drive, that's where the Titans really made the Texans look a lot more like themselves. That's where it looked to me like the Titans were going to start imposing their will. Um and it, it, that was really one of maybe three drives, Robert, in the in the second half where I thought, you know what? Like, yeah, the Texans began this, the you know, first, second drive of the third quarter. They're up 19-0, but it's 19-0. I mean, that's nothing for a team like Tennessee or a good football team to overcome against this Texan squad. There's just no way. The Texans are going to have to play a lot better now than they have been in the second half. And the Titans just could not put it together. I mean, there was, what was it, four interceptions today by Tannehill, and all, in my opinion, were horrible interceptions. Yeah, let's get to those in a second. But first, offensively, there's a three and out for the Texans. They punt, and then Terrence Brooks, just activated this week, gets called for a personal foul. Apparently, the Texans saw it was late in the third quarter, and they weren't close to their weekly penalty quota. <laughs> So the Titans have a fourth and six uh, on the next drive, but go for it instead of kicking the field goal. Eric Murray, though. Yes, that Eric Murray, the Eric Murray that's pretty much sucked since he's been signed by Bill O'Brien a couple of years ago with great coverage to stop the Titans. And they came up big on fourth down a couple of different times in this game, and, and they did it again. 
Yes. That, you know, not getting it on that fourth and six inside the 25 hurt. I mean, that was at least five points at that point in the game that they left off the board in the second half alone. It could have been a one possession game, which changes, um, you know, the the momentum, which changes the complexion of the game. I thought that was huge for Tennessee not to get that. So the Texans on offense, though, a three and out. Then on defense, Desmond King, again, bend but don't break. Huge interception yep. at the one-yard line. And that, that was a really nice play, too. Oh, it was, a, it was a great play. You know, and again, I, I said it myself, you know, every time the Titans looked like they were about to impose their will, the Texans made a play. It was just crazy. King, I mean, that dude, I don't know what he had for halftime lunch, but whatever he did, keep on doing it, you know, for the rest of the season because he looks like a player to me. Grugier Hill looks like a player to me. Like, this is... This is what makes me so angry about not being able to watch the Texans the same way or at all like I've been in years past is as angry as I am with the front office and why the Texans are in this position that they're in is because you don't get to see, you don't get to appreciate like the players that they do have that are making plays. It's hard for me to root for the players on the field because of the disdain I have for the front office and why they're in the position that they're in. But Gruje Hill and King, I mean, those were two studs defensively today. Desmond King, another one of the rare good signings by Casario, and we'll talk more about him in a second. But then on offense, three and out for the third straight time. So it's back to the defense. Just bad Texans luck on this play. Yeah. Zach Cunningham causes the fumble at the two. Ferkser recovers it in the end zone. Right place, right time. Johnny on the spot. Only the Texans. Yeah, right. Like, but isn't it uncanny? Like, Cunningham makes another huge play for the Texans on a third down. Every single time it seemed like today, Robert, the Texans were faced with a big third down defensively. They came up and they made a play. And Cunningham did it again. They forced the fumble. And it was just like, this is not supposed to happen because the Titans hadn't caught a break all day. Like, what are you, you're not supposed to be there. The Texans are supposed to be able to fall on that, run out of bounds, get the ball at the two or something, you know, uh, touchback, whatever. Like, Texans ball going the other way. And, you know, that play right there was really, it was like the Titans are going to kind of fall right into this game and have an opportunity to win this thing late. That's what I felt there. Yeah, Titans were given some opportunities in this one over and over again, and they just couldn't capitalize. And so the Texans on offense, three and out again. Tim Kelly decides it to decides to run it on fourth and two when they couldn't run it the entire second half. And before we started recording, Sean, you, you, you were not a fan of Tim Kelly and what he did as an offensive coordinator. And, and, and I just don't agree with, the assessment of Tim Kelly prior to Bill O'Brien leaving, because I thought he, he he did a hell of a job once Deshaun and him got to call their own plays and do their own thing. When, 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 you know, that, that happened this year, it, it's so hard to evaluate him because of Davis Mills. What, what do you think about Tim Kelly? You just don't think he's, he's good enough. It, it's, it's not necessarily a Tim Kelly problem, right? Uh, Tim Kelly certainly did not shine under Bill O'Brien, Right. Um, the offense had a lot of holes and I think we all, um, you know, could, you know, could say we had disagreements about the personnel that they put in place. The thing with Tim Kelly, I found it really difficult to kind of, uh, ascertain who was responsible for the success last year offensively for the Texans, um, with Deshaun Watson as quarterback, because, 
it seemed like, you know, once Tim Kelly, you know, got a, a hold of that offense and he was calling the plays, you know, yes, there was a, a, a noticeable difference for a short time in, in my opinion, but the lack of consistency. And I got to the point where it's like, you know, I, I can't really tell if this is, you know, just Deshaun being a great player and making plays in improvisation, checking into the right play, you know, after X, Y, Z was called, whatever the case may be. And it was very difficult. And now you're, you're in a situation where Kelly is the guy, he's your offensive coordinator and this is his baby, but you don't have Deshaun Watson. (laughs) You've got, you got a guy who has no business, you know, being a starting quarterback in the NFL, his rookie year in Davis Mills, because Tyrod Taylor, you know, goes out again with an injury and they're playing with a bunch of these slaps. Um, and so it's a really difficult assignment to grade fairly a coach when, you know, he's been given chicken bleep and, you know, has been asked to make chicken cordon blue. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That That's kind of where I where I am with it. Kelly, not impressive at all under Bill O'Brien, and I just haven't had a big enough sample size um, with the pieces on the field to make him as successful as maybe he thinks he can be at this point in time. And to be quite honest with you, I don't know if we ever see it. I don't know if I see David Kelly surviving beyond this season, regardless of where they finish, how they finish, how inspired of football they play. Um, I just think this guy's no more than a Bo Porter of the Houston Texans and is a bridge to, you know, another head coach and another point in time whenever they finally get the picks, the finally get the personnel on the field and finally kind of turn the worm on the, uh, you know, just the, the negative aura that this fan base has surrounding this football team. I wish he had a real offensive line and a real running back to work with. And he didn't get his best wide receiver and the best wide receiver of the NFL traded away. We w- might have really seen some beautiful things with Tim Kelly, not yeah, to mention there, not to mention losing Deshaun uh, last year. And 100%. then, then on the next defensive drive after the Texans four straight three and outs, Eric Murray and Terrence Mitchell both have an interception go right through their hands on a pass. And just one pass, both guys had a shot at it and it looked like it was an inevitable heartbreaker, but then Desmond King gets his second interception of the game. It's the fourth turnover the defense caused in this one. They would cause five in the game, five against zero turnovers by the offense. And that's what you got to talk about, Sean, for this game. That's why they won the game. There's your, there's the key. Yeah, no question. Mark Vandermeer and Andre Ware said it before the game today. I was listening to their pregame show. And, you know, as typically is the case against um, any team in which you're a 15 point underdog, you're going to have to create turnovers to give yourself an opportunity in the game. And that's just one of the facets in which are going to have to break your way to have an opportunity to win a game like this on the road in those conditions. And um, the Texans, you know, their players stepped up and made plays. It really, you know, as I'm watching this game today, these teams go into it with a game plan offensively, defensively on both sides of the ball. It looked like everything the Tennessee Titans had scouted on Lovey Smith's defense didn't happen. It looked like Lovey Smith maybe just completely flipped script today because how could you look so unprepared, play so undisciplined at home? You know, in those conditions, which you should be used to, you play in an outdoor stadium, 
You don't have the uh, luxury of playing in 72 degrees in an incredibly quiet stadium um, every single week. I, I just thought that, you know, today's effort by the Houston Texans, if you're giving a game ball away, it'd be really hard not to give one to Grugier Hill, be really hard to give not to give one to Desmond King. But I'm giving this dang thing to Lovey Smith for the job that he did defensively um, opposite um, you know, what was supposed to be one of the better defensive coordinators before he got a head coaching job in Mike Vrabel. Um, the job that he did on the road in that environment today against that, that squad, regardless of the injuries that the Titans sustained and, you know, a career worst game by Ryan Tannehill, your defense did that. Your defense made all of those things happen. Your defense laid the wood today, made some huge hits, made some big-time plays on third down. All credit to Lovey Smith in that defense today. Turnovers, turnovers, turnovers. The Texans ended the game with six straight three-and-out drives. They had less than 200 yards on offense to the Titans, 400-plus yards. That's the storyline of this game. And I was going to ask you, talking about game balls, we usually give an offensive MVP I mean, Tyrod Taylor, 14 for 24, 107 yards passing, no touchdowns or interceptions, but the two touchdown runs. I mean, that that's that's the only guy that you've got available as an offensive MVP for this one. Easy. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if Tyrod Taylor stayed back in Tennessee because he's still in an ice bath. I mean, that guy, you know, he hung in there in the pocket today, took some big hits. Um, you know, that one where he escaped uh, a couple of things, a safety and an intentional grounding in the back of the end zone. He threw that ball away. It looked like his ankle took quite a bit of a turn, um, looked kind of nasty. And the cameras didn't really show him move off the field after that that I noticed. But, um, yeah, the two touchdowns runs getting flipped up in the air, um, securing the ball today, leading an offense um, you know, on the road, down the field. And that first drive that they had to start the game was probably given, rem- remember, I've not seen this team play at all this season. Um, I heard about a, a, a 18 or 19 play drive that they had earlier this year. I read about that one against maybe it was the Browns. I don't remember who else it could have possibly been against, but this has to have been the best team football offense, defense, and even special teams wise, um, you know, missed extra point by fair bear, notwithstanding best overall performance by a Texans team, but certainly offensively, you got to give the tie rod. Yeah, biggest upset of the season in, in the NFL maybe today as well. And and, and on the defensive <laughs> yeah. MVP, it, it's unusual that we have two fantastic games by Texans defenders, of course. Desmond King, two massive interceptions. Grugier Hill, 12 tackles, six solo, two passes defensed, two quarterback hits, and the interception. Is he your guy? Is he the defensive MVP of that one of the game? No question. And let's just thank God Bill O'Brien's not here to hand out a five-year, seventy-five million dollar deal to Grugier <laughs> Hill after this game. <laughs> oh yeah, that's so true. Uh, <laughs> Ross Blacklock wins my Jadavian Clowney Memorial Award for the game because he lined up in the neutral zone twice and he did it wearing Clowney's number 90 Sean maybe nice. we need to get him a different uniform number so we can retire the 90 in the neutral zone <laughs> you know yeah well he got called for those but I can't tell you how many times in the first half the Tennessee Titans were lined up in the neutral zone and those side judges act like they had like blinders on they just didn't see them 
Um, I think that was probably the first flag that I remember seeing flying was a Texan player and it was him lined up in the neutral zone in the first half. And yeah, he definitely gets that Memorial award. I love that. Good job by you. But I mean, the referees were no less maddening to me today than they typically are on any given Sunday. Let me ask you this just from philosophy standpoint, a philosophy standpoint, are you upset when say the Texans that are terrible and say you cared more. Okay, Sean, are you upset <laughs> that they would win the game and hurt their draft position? Or as a fan, you still want them to win and let's not concern ourselves with draft position when there's really no quarterback in this draft that anybody's all that excited about anyway. Man, you know, I, I go back to my to the point that I made, like what hurts the most about not being able to watch this team the way that I want to or at all, um, I want to be able to root for the players on the field. The players on the field haven't a damn thing to do with the decisions that are made in the front office. Um, now, they might they might affect them. They might uh, be the reason for making certain types of personnel decisions. But for the ones that we've seen, um, Nick Casario and Bill O'Brien and Brian Gain and Cal McNair allow to happen over the course of the uh, two plus, last two plus years are inexcusable. I mean, it's it's gross negligence on behalf of NFL ownership. And if they could be tried and sentenced, it would mean Cal McNair would not be allowed to own as much as a a, 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 a stop and rob, you know, much less an NFL team. Um, and so having said that, no, I, I think it's important for guys to play their asses off, to win football games, to make plays, to make careers, to revitalize careers, to, um, you know, earn future contracts. And you're going to, if you're going to do that, you're going to step into some games. You're going to win some games. You're going to win some games against teams that you should. You're going to win some games against teams that you have absolutely have no business uh, being in against like today against the Titans. You know, look, you can have the first pick or you're going to have the fifth overall pick. It's still a damn good position to be in. And with the draft capital, the Texans, um, you know, have accumulated uh, over the course of the last year or so uh, with Nick Casario. You're in a position to where you can do just about any damn thing that you want to do because, um, you do, you are in a good position, regardless of how you got there, you're in a good position to rebuild. If you make good sound football decisions, uh, going forward. So no, I, that, that, that doesn't bother me at all because at the end of the day, I want to like my football team. I want to like the players on my football team. Um, I, I just, it, it's been a very difficult road for me, man, because, you know, <laughs> I'm a Houston sports fan and the way that this whole thing went down, we'll never really know what went on and why it went on, but doggone it, man, the way that it was written, what's been reported, it looks negligible as hell. And that's something that I, I can't soon forget or forgive from this Texans front office. But it might just be something in the next year or two or three years down the road that you kind of, you know, put in the back of your mind, but enjoy the product that's on the field and forget the way or the reason that it became to be as such. Yeah, and I don't know what happens uh, if the Texans 
you know, had Deshaun not gotten in trouble, you know, would it still be, we're still waiting to trade, trade him and whatever, as far as winning or losing to me, it's just, you know, if you're, if you're a good organization, draft well you know there there is no Peyton there's no LeBron that you're trying yeah, to lose for yeah, yeah. so just just draft well just you know it, it, this isn't hard you, the good organizations draft well no matter where they are and the, yeah you said it they're going to get a high pick it's going to be a top five pick if it's not the first pick so yeah just just make a good pick and make good picks and that's something that the Texans haven't always been good at they've been great at the first round but beyond that you know, and, and they haven't been great in the first round since Rick Smith's left, but they were, they've were been great in the first round. But outside of that, it's been bad. I'll just make this point quickly. Um, I, I think a major part of the equation, the starter really, for being able to draft well is being able to grade and understand the talent that already exists on your team. And the decisions to need or want to replace what you might already have um, via the draft or free agency, that's the impetus for everything. And you, because you can look at every draft for every single team, Robert, and say, man, look, look, look at our squad. You know, we had the 25th overall pick and we chose this guy three years down the road and he didn't amount to squat. But look at all the players that we passed up on. Look who got taken 32nd overall. Look who got taken 132nd overall. They're a perennial pro bowler now. And it, sometimes those things begin – because of the way that you have graded and um, ascertained the needs and wants of your own team with the personnel that you already have. You, you're, you're, the, the route that you've decided to take via the draft is just – the impetus is by judging what you already have. So it's really – the job falls on Nick Casario in this front office, you know – trying to see the players that they do have, you know, there's a guy like Gruget Hill, who's been a, uh, you know, career uh, role player now having a real opportunity to start and play meaningful snaps in the NFL, not for a, uh, you know, contending football team, but can this guy be a player on a team that is ready to take the next step in two years? That's the decision that, you know, Nick Casario is going to have to make on a number of guys, and that's going to impact where and who they draft in the future. I can't let you go without talking about the best football team in the city of Houston right now, the Cougs, who took care of business against Memphis and somehow dropped to 19th in the AP polls. I don't know what's going on there, but try to figure that one out. If it wasn't, though, for the second half against Texas Tech, the first game of the season, they'd be undefeated. Sean, do you think if that was the case, that U of H versus Cincinnati would be for a spot in the college football playoff in a couple of weeks? How could it not be? How could it not be? I mean, U of H and Cincinnati both have the resumes, you know, as major D1 college programs. They've been there, done that before. They put together really great seasons before, so they've caught the, um, you know, the committee's eye before. Um, they've caught the, you know, the polls before where the Cougs have eked up. I think inside the top, I think they were like on the outside looking in just a few short years ago, maybe of the top ten. Uh, maybe the highest they'd reached is number eleven um, a couple of times under Cobb's uh, Cobb's reign at U of H and or Keenum's reign at U of H and. Um, uh, Ward's reign at U of H. I mean, they've kind of been there, done that. Cincinnati's been a program as well that, um, you know, uh, when when they put together really good seasons, they've gotten the notoriety. But 
look, anytime you're going up against, you know, power five conference schools like the Alabamas uh, of the world, you're going to lose out every single time. I feel like a lot of noise has really been made right now over the course of the last couple of weeks in regards to Cincinnati. But if U of H is undefeated at this point in time, not for that Texas Tech game, 100% those two teams uh, have all eyes of the college football world upon them, and rightfully so. And the basketball team isn't bad either. What a slaughter of Virginia and Kelvin Sampson. Let me just say, the best coach, sorry, Dusty, in the city of Houston right now. And frankly, is there any way he can coach the Rockets and the Cougars at the same time? (laughs) (laughs) Boy, I'd like to see him parlay. Like, no, I wouldn't. Never mind. I was going to say, like, I'd like to see him parlay success with the uh, Houston Cougars and get back with the Houston Rockets, you know, for Kelvin Sampson, because I really enjoy him as a person. And he is a great basketball coach. I'll give give you that for sure. You're 100% correct. But, I mean, man, the Cougs, you know, right now, um, I mean, who do you who do you give the most props to? Who do you who do you give the most thanks to? You know, I think it's a tandem between Rena Couture and Tillman Fertitta, the job that they've done um, in, in, in bringing the eyes, the attention, the money, um, the resources and amenities that those athletic programs now have uh, to attract the talent. And never mind a head coach and Kelvin Sampson. Um, to really keep that basketball program on the map by keeping himself right there off of Cullen Boulevard um, is, is absolutely huge. That can that cannot be understated. The loyalty that he's shown, um, which doesn't exist anymore in any sport, professional or collegiate, is absolutely huge. That basketball team's legit. One of my favorite basketball people, um, analysts, um, today is Jay Billis. Did you see what Jay Billis had to say a couple of days ago? Just um, glowing remarks about Kelvin Sampson and that Houston Cougar squad, how they just look explosive, remarkable, and dangerous uh, going forward. And that says a lot uh, to me, but it says a lot to, I think, the onlookers nationally. When somebody like that boasts that highly about this program, it makes me excited for March. That U of H Virginia game, between Billis and the game itself, it was like a two-hour advertisement to all recruits out there. Come to U of H. Yeah, well, you know that center, that Tillman, the the Fertitta Center, and when it's stacked like that, and you see that sea of red, and it is that loud. I don't know if you've been to a game there, Robert, but I'm telling you right now, and it was even like this with Hawfines, but it's with Hawfines, the acoustics were horrible, right? Um, but it was so low and, you know, you stuck 7,900 people in there. I think this, uh, Fertitta center now seats in and around like 81, 8,200. Um, so pretty close to what Hoffines did as well, but I would match the, the noise level of that arena to almost any stadium in this city. When that place is rocking, you can't hear yourself. Your heart is vibrating. You can't hear the person next to you. I mean, it is it is one of the best sports atmospheres that I've ever been a part of right there off of Cullen Boulevard, man. And I tell you what, you know, we, we mentioned the Rockets briefly, but who would have guessed that the Rockets, after losing 14 games and being 1-15, would not be the coach or not be the organization that fired their coach 
first this year. <laughs> it was the Sacramento Kings who have six wins. Hey, that's six six times as many wins as the Rockets, Sean. Where, where do we yeah. where do we get Luke Walton? How do we get him uh, over to the over to Houston as quickly as possible? <laughs> Are you over Silas already? Because <laughs> oh yeah, you know, I, I just here's the thing. You know, when when you have a squad like this, when you're young and you're talented and you have so many uh, skill sets, which I think this Rockets team does. Now, if you asked me a month ago, do I think this team is one in 15? Hell no. I, I think they're still a bottom feeder, but one in 15? Absolutely not. That That's concerning to me. But, you know... Putting a roster together is a very difficult thing, I, I think, now in the NBA. Um, when, you've, when you've decided that you're going to go all in at the bottom. And it's another organization which, you know, kind of, I, I think it's lost in the shuffle because of the disdain uh, that the Houston Texans caused with just sports fans in this city. The Rockets were kind of second to come along here. And, you know, James Harden and that exodus with Daryl Morey, I mean, that was just an absolute dumpster fire. And and every bit is ugly. Um, just it's not the NFL. It's the NBA. And people are a lot, I think, quicker to move on with basketball than they are with their football. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I say all that to say this. It's a very difficult job that I think Silas and and Stone stepped into. And I'm willing to give Silas a little bit more time because if you're going to be patient with the players, I think you need to be patient with the head coach as well who's in charge of developing those players. Um, I think that staff has its own battles that they need to fight as well. It doesn't sound at all to me like John Lucas and um, you know Silas are on the same page when it comes to how they're addressing their team. I feel very I feel it's very much like mixed messages being sent between the coaches. And you can have a good cop, bad cop, and you know, Silas is much more the very good cop than that of the seasoned veteran uh NBA lifer as John Lucas. But um I'm willing to give him a little bit more time because I think he assembled his staff for those things in mind that he needs guys that have been there, done that, that can help him um create a, a ta- not just a talent-rich roster, but one that can function and play together. I guess uh, my and I think Steven's issue ha- has been with the Rockets, the, the mixed messages that we're getting from the organization. And I don't know if this is a Silas and Stone not being on the same page or what, but when you send out the message that we're going to develop Kevin Porter at the cost of l- winning games and, and not even putting John Wall in a uniform, then why do you go out and sign Daniel Tice and put him in the starting lineup when you have two guys that should be getting all of your time at center and Christian Wood and Shangoon? And, and that's what I don't understand more than anything. And I, and I also don't understand the emphasis that they put on playing Daniel House when you have K.J. Martin, who's developed as good as any young player on the entire Rockets roster the last couple of seasons. And I, I don't know how – I don't want to use the word meddlesome, but maybe for the lack of a better word, um, you know, where those directives are necessarily coming from. If it's based on the inconsistencies or the thought processes of the staff or if these are things that maybe the staff is fighting with management as well. It, it's kind of difficult 
you know, I think when you've reached the stage of um, an organization with a guy like Rafael Stone and somebody that was not seen nor heard from in particular, but, you know, after the fact, you learn that, you know, he's very hands on and responsible for certain moves under Daryl Morey that maybe you thought Morey was the sole orchestrator of. Well, what is that like now? What does he want to see on his court? Um, and does that mesh with what the staff uh, thinks they should see on their court? Um, I think it's a really interesting situation. Um, I, I think, you know, all all of those possibilities are at play here. I want to see it play out a little bit more. Um, I've not been impressed at all, just like a lot of other people that watch this team on a routine basis. Um, the 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 kind of passion or lack thereof that they're playing with. Sometimes, some nights, they look like they'd rather be anywhere else but a basketball court and playing defense. Um, it's not inspired. It's not fun. It's miserable basketball to watch at times. But then other times, Robert, I mean, my God, you just see the potential of guys when Jalen Green is, is clicking and rolling, and it, it gets you really excited for a short minute um, you know, about this squad here in the next couple to three years. And so I want to give Silas a little bit more time, certainly this year. Um, and if it's not working in a couple of months down the road, then maybe you make a decision. Maybe you have a guy in mind and you think to yourself, you know what? Maybe this is Lucas's time, um, you know, to kind of guide this team um, to a certain spot. So another man, another coach can take them to the next level. We'll see. I would beg Houston sports fan right now, Sean, to just keep in mind that you got to look at the glass half full in Houston sports right now. And it's a weird time because it's, it's, it's all or nothing. You have the Astros that they're the best team in baseball. You've got the best organization in baseball, you know, over the last few years. And you have the Texans and the Rockets that look like the two worst franchises in their particular sport. But on the other hand, let's go glass half full because I, I count the Cougars as a Houston franchise. And the Cougars football team is a top 20 team this year, has rattled off all these straight wins. And the basketball program just was in the final four. And watch the games. Those guys are fun, fun, fun to watch. It's an incredibly well-coached team. It's a great-looking arena that they finally built there and, and replaced the old Hoffines Arena. And it's just, you've got a lot of good stuff going on with U of H, and I know everybody's got their own alma mater that they came from. Most people, you know, they didn't go to the University of Houston that are in Houston, but they, they wear Houston on, on their uniforms. And you know, you, you you got a team in college sports that's interesting, and, and that's the one that you're going to get all the time here in Houston. You're going to see them on television frequently. You're going to see, as well as the college basketball team, you, you get to watch those guys, and, and, and it's fun. I mean, you may, that's a really great point, but it's, you know, college fans, allegiances, you know, a lot of them don't make sense. You know, we have a lot of Oregon fans here, Auburn fans here, Al Alabama, LSU fans, Aggie fans here that never even sniffed an opportunity to attend those colleges, but they're the biggest fans of those football, baseball, basketball teams in the world. Well, you live in here in Houston. Why not, you know, put the red and the white on and get behind, you know, the Cougs a little bit. It's, it's one of those things that doesn't make sense. And it's kind of those things that, you know, what were you raised on? How were you brought up? You know, forget about the reason for your allegiance. It's maybe more or less of a tradition kind of thing. But 
I tell you this much. Um, I, I do agree with that point, man. Hey, you know, get behind and represent the Houston uh, Cougar faithful. There's no doubt about that, especially since they're playing some great brands of football and basketball. But man, how about the people that went to those colleges? I mean, it makes it makes it so enjoyable. Like for myself, I graduated in 2006. I'm 15, 16 years removed um, from attending there and going to school with Case Keenum and then covering Case Keenum and uh, Cobb as well and going into the Greg Ward Jr. years and things like that. This is so awesome. You know, we've been through numerous head coaches, staffs, players, quarterbacks, all those things. And to have have the university now like right there with the excitement and on the cusp of joining a, a major conference in the big 12. Like I, th- I thought it was great when I was there and Keenum was doing Keenum things and the basketball team, you know, beaten Kentucky, you know, with a stacked house at Hawthines. And I just didn't think it could get any better than this. Well, it certainly has. And the Cougs as a university, as an athletic program are certainly on to bigger and better things if they continue this culture up. The other thing, Sean, is I, I grew up in Houston when Five Slamma Gem was going on and Bill Yeoman and all these great teams. So so I get it. A lot of yeah. people that have been around here don't remember or weren't around or weren't born or whatever. I, I get all that. But I think you're going to realize in the next couple of years when you're again in a major conference how cool it is to have a program in your city wearing your team's or wearing your city's name on the front of it uh, being – competitive and and that sort of confidence and there's no doubt they're going to be competitive and it's not just that they're going to be competitive in a power five conference they're going to be competitive in what i think is going to be maybe the best conference in college basketball in a couple of years that would be something wouldn't it um i i just hope the conference continues to carry the cachet that it currently has now um and it's going to take a little bit for it to rebuild what it had in years past but I mean, I see the promise and I just hope it's one of those situations where, you know, this is all happening for the university and it's not five years too late. You know what I'm saying? And I don't think it is. I mean, you can only control what you can control. And the University of Houston academically and athletically have put themselves in a position to where um, they don't need to make a hasty decision. You know, they're, they're not just trying to latch on to a bigger and better conference just because it's a bigger and better conference. No, it's about quality. It's about quantity, certainly, but it's about longevity as well and future earning power. And they wouldn't be doing this if there wasn't any of that. And certainly if there's future earning power and the quality of opponent is certainly, um, you know, important, um, they wouldn't be making this decision. And they wouldn't want any part of it. They'd say, you know what? We've made it this far this long and, <laughs> you know, we're going to ride this out for a few more years. It still feels like college football and basketball landscape is still going to change dramatically over the course of even the next decade. Um, I think now's the time. They put themselves in position to be successful um, in all facets. So I'm, I'm pumped for basketball especially, but for football as well. I mean, this is going to be a, a huge, um, I think, opportunity. Might be rough at first, but um, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, the athletic programs down the road in, in the Big 12. Oh, absolutely. It's it's going to be so much fun. and It's time, man. 
Speaking of time, it's been way too much time since we had a chance to catch up with you. I can't believe I, I looked. It's been over a year since we had you on the show, and I can't thank you enough for for coming on with us. Thanks for you know not forgetting about me and including me, and you know always enjoy talking sports with you, man. It's it's um, I, you know I, I've had a lot to say over the course of the last two years pent up, you know not having not having the opportunity to voice it because of COVID, you know taken away. Um, opportunities for me and a lot of other people. But, uh, man, I appreciate you having me on. It's always good to catch up and talk sports with you. Fantastic. And and until next time, enjoy your holiday week. We might have a little bonus show for you this week. I'm not sure yet, but um, hope you have a happy and healthy Thanksgiving holiday. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.